Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, The Return of Majesty. Do you ever have the sense that the status of the modern church is not bad, it just lacks a little luster? When we read of the great revivals of Pentecost, the Great Awakening, the Reformation, the seasons of rich blessing upon the church, it is readily apparent that our condition is desperately in need of an infusion of the grandeur and majesty of Almighty God. As Ravenhill was fond of saying, we don't need a new definition of Christianity. We need a fresh demonstration. Indeed, and in this hour of darkness, may God use us to showcase his great might and splendor. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. This is what the entire weekend is about. In fact, I'd like to say it this way. This entire ministry that we have here at Ellersley Mission Society, this entire church, our entire training It's about the return of majesty. It's the return to the church in this day and age, the strength, the power, the might of the ancient church, the way the church is supposed to be. And so this weekend we were talking about the way a man ought to be. There is a burden inside of me, and I'm not sure if it hangs out in your soul too. You know, when you've only lived in one body, you don't quite know what oftentimes it's like in someone else's body. You assume that it's similar to the way it is in your body, that their minds function the way your mind function, it functions. It doesn't always work that way, though. I remember I was descri- sitting down at college, and I was descri- describing how I saw the calendar and the year. And it, it goes, like, January's here, and it goes around, like, June is right here, and, you know, August and September, October. So, like, right now, we're, we're back here. Uh, but when we're back there... I'm turned around this way in my mind. I'm looking at September. Uh, and so I, August 31st, to be technical. And then it goes around December 31st is here, and then we have a new year. Well, isn't that totally normal? And then I was talking to these students at college, you know, that I was going to school with, and they're like, you are weird. <laughs> well, you don't see it that way? How about my numbers? Like, zero is right here, and it goes up to 10, and then 10 to 20, and 20 to 30. And then when I get to, like, 40, I'm zooming in, and then 40 is right here. Isn't that the way everyone sees it? And then people are looking like, no. But then if you start telling me how you think, I would be like, that's weird. So I'm not exactly sure what goes on inside of other people. However, truth is truth. It's ironic, but we still agree on the same numbers, same months. Our lives are built around the same reality, but sometimes we appropriate it a little differently. We're all a part of a body. And whatever part of the body I am, I have an ache inside of me. It's a burden inside of me for the return of majesty, the return of something bigger to the church of Jesus Christ. Come on, are you going to tell me this is all it's supposed to be? Are you going to try and sell me on the fact that this version of Christianity that I've grown up around is all there is? Because I've read the Bible, and I'll tell you what, this is not what's described in it. Do you have that ache too? It's a strange ache, and it doesn't go away. In fact, the longer I live on this earth, the ache grows. What started out as a simple ache to just see a desire for my life to begin to live at a grander level. It spreads. It's not a disease, that kind of spread. It's a good sort of thing, but it spreads throughout my life. It grows, and it begins to spread to say, I want your life to be stronger too. Wait a minute, not just your life. I want that nation to be made stronger. I want that nation to be made stronger. May the nation see the majesty of my king. Isn't majesty a great word? It's like you don't use the word majesty to describe small things. A mouse, for instance, is not majesty. 
You use things like mountains to describe majesty. But truly, if we saw the majesty of God, we'd look at mountains sort of as mice. It's like, oh, come on. You're actually going to call mountains majestic? Have you ever seen God? That's true majesty. That's the way we would be thinking. But most of us have never seen the majesty. And as a result, the mountains are the best thing we have to liken it to. It's sort of like the mountains. You don't come up to a mountain and push it out of the way. A mountain pushes you out of the way. You see, mountains are fixed. They're steady. They're there. And they're big. Eh, that's like God. He's like a mountain. He's like a mountain range. He is a mountain of diamond. Uncuttable, immovable, indestructible. And guess where we find our life as a church? Inside that mountain. If you guys have ever heard of NORAD, it's like this little hideout, this little whole world inside of a mountain in Colorado too. And like the president of the United States may or we may not end up there in a time of a nuclear holocaust, right, to be protected. Well, come on, NORAD's nothing next to what we have. We have the mountain of God, the majesty of God that we find refuge and hide in. We must have a return of majesty. So whether or not you have the ache, I have the ache, and since I'm the one speaking this morning, you're going to have to deal with my ache. The word return suggests that something has gone away, and indeed it has. The yearning for the returning. So this is paraphrased from a footnote in Martyr's Mirror. I read this. I've actually never found it again. Technically, I don't even know that I've looked for it, but this is like 20-some years ago. I was reading Martyr's Mirror, and it was a really old copy of Martyr's Mirror. Many of you have heard of Fox's Book of Martyrs. This is very similar. It was written in the 1500s. It's about that thick, and the version I had was just this mammoth version, like leather cover. It's very old, smelled old. It was like a dream book. I love old books. And so, like, you're paging through it, and, like, pages fall out. It was very old. And so you're trying to keep it together. And there was a footnote at the very bottom of one of the pages. And it said this. Now, this is a paraphrase of it. A little ludeism thrown into it. But listen to this. This greatly impacted my life. And I have a hunch it'll greatly impact yours. After the ascension of Christ, it was often noted by the saints that the apostle Peter would cry. When a cock would crow, it would often move the apostle to tears. But there were other times, too, when, for no apparent reason, the big framed fisherman would sob. One day, a young believer dared to approach the mighty man of God and ask the question that was on everyone's heart. Peter, why do you cry? The apostle looked at the young man and said, Desiderio Domini. Peter's actual words were not Latin, but this is how history has preserved his his famed utterance. This is the grief-strained words that have passed down through Christian history and have moved so many that have read them. For in English, the phrase desiderio domini means because I dearly long for my Lord. Do you imagine this big, hulking fisherman? That's actually how Christian history would even describe him. He was a big man. And this big man sobbing. You literally see his chest heaving. And when a cock crows and the, the man breaks down and cries, I mean, that sort of makes sense. Yeah, that's reminding him of something. What's it reminding him of? The tender love of Jesus. But other times, this big man would just start crying. Isn't that an amazing thought to think of this foundation stone of the church of Jesus Christ throughout the ages being such a tender man? Peter, why do you cry? Because I miss him. I miss him. If you knew him the way I knew him, you'd miss him too. 
If you saw him the way I saw him, you would miss him too. And our chest would heave as well. Have you seen him? Do you miss him? I remember when I read this all those years ago, I remember feeling so dead inside compared to Peter. I was like, God, I don't feel like that. I don't have that tender cavity within me that is shaking because I long to see you. I must have that. And so at the end of all my journal entries, I used to keep a journal every day back in those days. I mean, I, I, I chronicled my life every detail I wrote down. So, I mean, I don't know if those will ever be released. I hope not. Uh, I should have signed some pact with Leslie that if I die early that she doesn't release my, my journal entries. It's for the family. Keep them there. But at the end of each entry, I would write, Desiderio Domini. Not because I always felt it, but because I longed to feel it. That was my plea with God. God, you know my longing. I want to cry desiderio domini. I want my chest to convulse because I long to be with you. More than anything else, I want you. And that's this message. I want Jesus to be seen in this generation. Not just by me, but by you. I want us as a church to weep and to long for the returning of majesty. Desiderio domini. It's Latin. There's reasons why you might not understand what it means. However, you can see in it, desiderio, desire, Uh deep desire, deep longing, ache, domini, anno domini, A.D., the year of our Lord, domini, Lord, desire for Lord, desiderio, I dearly long for, domini, my Lord, the ache of the twice born. That's what this is. This is how we live as Christians. Do you feel it? Do you long for that return? Do you long for that day when you'll see him face to face? Do you ache for it? Do you yearn for it? If you don't, are you willing to allow the Spirit of God to put his finger on that and say, do you want to? Are you willing to be changed by me, says the Spirit of God, to feel what I feel? The Spirit of God longs for the return of majesty. You know what it says in Revelation? There's a certain prayer that has been prayed for 2,000 years. And ironically, it has not yet been answered. You know who's praying that prayer? Well, the Spirit of God is one of the people praying. Isn't that an amazing thought? You're always concerned about, hey, how come my prayer hasn't been answered? The Spirit of God's been praying a prayer for 2,000 years that hasn't yet been answered. It will be, but it hasn't yet. The Spirit and the bride say, The spirit and the bride say, come, Lord Jesus. The statement in the Greek is, Maranatha. Maranatha, come. Return. Is that your cry? The spirit and the bride cry it. Are you a part of the bride? Are you in agreement with the spirit of God in this generation? What's he crying? He's crying, Maranatha. Return, O majesty. Return, O strength. Return, O king of kings and lord of lords. The crowns upon your head, the sword protruding out of your mouth, your vesture dipped in blood, your thigh with the inscription of King of kings and Lord of lords, the faithful and true. Return. Return for your bride. To desiderio. Now, I'm sort of making up a verb here. But it's to desire. So I'm going to say to desiderio. That's what we need to be doing. This is our verb. This is our action as a church to dearly long, to ache, to deeply desire, to sigh, and to cry. 
marking the ones that actually care. You know, does it matter if you care? There's a story in Ezekiel that is so deeply stirring to me. God is looking at a reprobate nation. Israel and Judah have gone off the rails. They've lost their way. They are now captives in Babylon. God forewarned them. He says, keep me at the center and you will always be preserved. But if you lose sight of me and you go after other gods, you will be captive in other nations. You will become their slaves. And sure enough, God's word has always proven true. And now the Israelites are slaves in Babylon. God is upset. There is such a debauchery that has entered into the people of God. And God is longing to see someone care. In fact, even when he comes to Ezekiel, it's like, do you care? Do you care for what I care about? You know that God has a burden? God cares about the return of majesty? And for some reason, most of us are just dead towards it. It's like, ah, that would be nicer. Instead of caring for what God cares for. So listen to this story in Ezekiel 9. God has come down and he's speaking to Ezekiel and he says, he cried, this is God who cried, He cried also in mine ears with a loud voice. Cause them to have charge over the city to draw near. Even every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate, which lies toward the north. And every man a slaughter weapon in his hand. God is commissioning armed men. I don't know if these are angels. It's it's sort of a mysterious story. But it's almost like they're armed angels with slaughter weapons in hands. It's a pretty extreme description. What's God doing? He is actually purging his people. He is looking at these that call themselves by his name, and he says, mark them. He's going to mark very specific people. The ones he marks are the ones that sigh and cry over the abominations that are taking place. And one man among them was clothed with linen, with a writer's inkhorn by his side. And they went in and stood beside the brazen altar, and the glory of the God of Israel was gone up from the cherub. God was riding a cherubim. Uh, That's actually part of the story. It's an amazing one. Whereupon he was to the threshold of the house, and he called to the man clothed with linen, which had the writer's inkhorn by his side. And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is a picture of the bride in, in in Revelation. The new Jerusalem. And set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. That abomination within Jerusalem. Mark those that sigh and cry. And then it says, And to the others he said in my hearing, Go you after him through the city and smite. Let not your eyes spare, neither have you pity. It's okay to go. Praise God, we're in a new covenant. See, God means business. When it comes to the purity of his bride, we have one hope, and that's the redemption of Jesus Christ. Get into that clothing. You see, we are dead emotionally when it comes to the cares of God, the cares of heaven. Gethsemane, are you weeping? Are you sweating, as it were, great drops of blood? Do you care? What happened to the desiderio? What happened to the ache of the twice-born? What, what happened to it in the church? Are you willing to have it return full force in you? Even if it means you sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. Are you willing? Desiderio reditum maiatsatus. Yeah, I, I don't really speak Latin very well. 
Roughly translated means, I deeply desire the return of majesty. That's my attempt at writing a Latin sentence. If anyone speaks Latin in here, they're probably like, come on. I went through a translator to do that. I deeply desire the return of majesty. This is excerpted from the Bravehearted Gospel. Whatever happened to the idea of sacred honor, unvarnished nobility, and unwavering allegiance to a king? What happened to the quake in my boots fear of God, the lay-it-all-in-the-line commitment to the cause of Christ, and the die-if-I-must attitude toward defending truth in Scripture? Where did the radical abandon to seek and save the lost disappear to, or the once-glorious idea of martyrdom? Or how about the burning need to stand against evil, to break the jaws of the wicked in order to ransom the oppressed, the orphaned, the widowed, and the enslaved? Where is the holy boldness, the courage, and the daring needed to birth the truth of Christ into this God-forsaking culture? What happened to the once noble idea of preaching with both authority and conviction? Where has the vanguard, the mighty men, the fiercely loyal regiment of King Jesus vanished to? Because we need them, and we need them now. Is that a great summation of our weekend or what? Well, that's a great summation of my heart. I think it's a great summation of what God's heart is in this hour. It's an ache. It's a burden, and it keeps gnawing away at my soul. What happened to the strength? We could say it this way. What happened to the heavenly masculinity? Because that's what that is. It's when the men return to the church, and they bring the manly stuff to bear. That's what it looks like. It's strong. It's honorable. It's willing to die if need be. Quake in the boots, trembling before the word of God. God said it, men. We heed it. Our commander has spoken. We say, sir, yes, sir. And we go straight into the line of fire if necessary, even if we die doing it. We're men built for such an hour as this. There's a proverb, and I'm going to say it in a very simple way. It's the same old, same old. It's always been this way. It'll always continue to be this way. Nothing's ever changed. The church has always been this way. Do you know what? There's actually a proverb. Back in Israel, there was a proverb just like it. We have a proverb today in the church. And it is, you know what? God accepts this limp-wristed version. God doesn't mind it. He's always put up with it. If he was against it, he would have struck us all down with lightning. And we were bearing his name after all. I think he's fine with it. It's a proverb. And we have somehow allowed it to inoculate us to the reality that something is missing. How in the world can all of us read the same Bible and come to the conclusion that everything's fine? How how, how do you do that? And I know that some of you feel this too. Am am I the only wild-eyed one here that is uncomfortable with the fact that we are not in agreement with Scripture? That that's not what it says? That God says so much more? That God intends so much more? Am I the only wild-eyed wacko? Am I a wacko or is the church the wacko? Have you ever felt that one? And of course you feel like when you're the only one barking, you have to be the wacko. When you're the one with the leathern girdle and you have locust and wild honey for dinner and your hair is like, it's sort of hard to say that they're the wacko. Look at me. I've become John the Baptist. I said this weekend the word repent. Can you believe that? No one's allowed to say that today. Oh, no, keep your mouth shut on that one, Eric. That's not in the current modern glossary of the church. That has been eliminated. Repent! Who would dare say that? (laughs) Are we willing to bear witness to the word of God even when it makes us all uncomfortable? Are we willing to say, God said it, people. 
Look, we don't need to say it rudely. We don't need to say it mean-spirited. We don't need to say it in a way that whacks people across the face, but we do need to say it. People, please, there is so much more, and we can't settle where we're at. Please, let's go on. Let's yearn for that which God intends the church to have. So here it is in Ezekiel. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, what is that proverb that you have in the land of Israel, saying, The days are prolonged and every vision fails? Yeah, the days are prolonged in the church and the word of God doesn't actually work. All these promises of God, yeah, they don't actually work. Tell them, therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make this proverb to cease. Oh, what a, what a line. And they shall no more use it as a proverb in Israel. May that be the case today. Abraham staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Do you see a difference between that proverb and how Abraham lived? Abraham said, my God said it, he will do it. But what does the modern Israel of that day say? Oh, it's always been like this. God actually doesn't ever come through. He's actually not going to do anything about this. See, something's wrong, and that proverb will cease in Israel. So here's our proverb. The proverb of he said it, he'll do it. That's our proverb. Hey, God said it, he'll do it. It's guaranteed slam dunk. Is Jesus Christ going to return for his bride? Yeah. Are you going to waver on that just because it's been 2,000 years? Oh, no, I don't think he's coming. He's coming. He's coming. I know it beyond a shadow of a doubt. I don't waver on it. I'm not going back and forth. He promised, he'll do it. It's that simple, and it's called faith, and it's what marks us as believers. Passivity. Boo. The key operative strength to sin. You see, there is different kinds of passivity. And for instance, if someone struck me on the cheek, and I turned to them the other also, you could say, Eric's passive. He didn't defend himself. And that's not the passivity I'm talking about. I'm talking about the one where lust knocks on the door of my soul. And I open my door and say, hey, yeah, I, I'm, I'm non-resistant, so I, I need to allow you in. If you are non-resistant in your soul towards sin, you die. You cannot be passive. Sin banks on the fact that there is not going to be a resistance in you. But what happens when Jesus Christ moves in? There is a growl. There is a fire. And there is a resistance. Oh, no. Not on my watch. So I'm going to call this the key operative strength to sin. James 4, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Now you're going to notice that I'm going to read the same line over and over and over again. I sometimes do this just to make a point. This is every translation uh, that uh, we might want to see. To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. If you know what you need to be doing and you don't do it, it's sin. So when the enemy is coming and he's knocking... And the word of God clearly says, don't accept him in. Well, then to open the door, to remain passive, is actually sin. To not do something is as bad as doing something that is wrong. It's called the sin of omission. When you omit an action, it is just as bad as committing an action. Most of us have been duped into the thought that, well, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm not going out and committing adultery. Yeah, but you're allowing the adultery in without resistance. You see, the enemy has an agenda in this world, and if you sit by passively and do nothing, you are culpable for something known as sin. He who knows 
what he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. So what do we do? We plug our ears. I don't know that I really want to know what I ought to do. You must know what you ought to do. Do you know what you ought to do this weekend? You just got a whole earful, all the men in here, of what you ought to do. Now you need to do it. So the third line, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Sort of getting the point. Sometimes to repeat the same scripture seven times really does make a point. Because it makes it sound like it's really saying it. It is really saying it, and we should only take one repetition to hear it. However, for most of us in the church, it takes about seven. In fact, I could go through it again. It might take 14 for some of us. You must do something. That's the principle of what we're talking about. Passivity, no. You must do something. You must do something. Do you need me to emphasize must, make it all capitals? You must. There isn't an option. If the enemy is coming against my children, I cannot sit by passively and do nothing. The enemy comes to the door and says, hey, Eric, I'd like to come in and harm your family. I don't just stand by and go, oh, well, you know, whatever you want to do. I have an open door policy in my house. So whatever wants to come in gets to come in and harm my kids. Oh, no. Um, No, thank you. Uh, You're not allowed here. You see, there must be a stand. There must be something that I do. You must respond. You must pick a side. You must make a decision. You must choose. I'm going to spend some time today talking about 11. 11 is the, probably one of the most unspiritual numbers in the Bible, wouldn't you say? I mean, is even 11 in the Bible? I mean, God uses very specific numbering. Have you noticed that? I, I mean, you have one. One's a good number. Uh, three. Uh, four. There's four Gospels. Four seasons. I mean, it's, there's a lot of things that are four. Five, the digits on a man. Six, bad number. We don't want to talk about that one. <laughs> Seven is the number of completion. Eight is the number of new beginnings. Nine is the number of the spiritual gifts and, and uh, also of the fruit of the Spirit. Really amazing. Ten, number of uh, righteousness. It's the law of God. Ten commandments. You follow me? Eleven. Oh, I'll skip over that one. Go to twelve. It's the number of witness. Eleven? Why in the world is Eric going to bring up eleven? Well, there's a reason. So eleven, what's so special about that number? It just needs one more to make it twelve. <laughs> and 12 is the number that will turn the world upside down. You see, 11 is like begging for one more. We all know it. It's like, eh, that's not the right number. We're stuck in 11. What's 11 needing? It needs one of you to rise up. 11 isn't right. We all know it. We're stuck at 11. Who's the one that is willing to stand up and make it 12? Because 12 is the number that will turn the world upside down. The return of the 11. Here are the 11 things that my soul bleeds to see return. Now, I had written a letter to a group of people, and it included this. And it just happened to have 11 things, which just worked well into my message. And so, the 11, you're going to see this as a theme throughout. It's really fascinating. But here are the 11 things that my soul bleeds to see return. I want to see the return of majesty, the rack of glory to the brow of the church. I want to see the return of Christ's centricity to the preaching and teaching of the word of God. I want to see the return of Christ's centricity to the academic and spiritual tutelage of our children. 
I want to see the return of brave-hearted, purposeful, straightforward discipleship for every Christian alive. I want to see the return of manly, unabashed, unashamed, undiluted, love-infused, supremely creative gospel tearing, dismantling the presiding postmodern, seeker-sensitive ideas by demonstrating the power of God's historic methodology for winning the lost. I want to see the return of manly strength, nobility, and spiritual growl to the men of God. I want to see the return of feminine strength, dignity, and spiritual purpose to the women of God. I want to see the return of the church that prays, always prays. I want to see the return of real, genuine spirit empowerment to the church of Jesus Christ, manifest in such a way that it is evident and obvious to all that are honest that God truly and authentically is sealing the message with his demonstration of power. I want to see the return of the church that deeply, affectionately, and tenderly loves one another, that gladly will suffer to serve its fellow brothers and sisters. And finally, 11, I want to see the return of the church that is strong to give, strong to disciple, strong to pray, strong to serve, strong to be sent, strong to, to give answers for what they believe, strong to evangelize, strong to adopt, strong to wash the feet, strong to suffer harm, and even strong to die well. I mean, who doesn't want that? Am I that crazy? Or is that actually what we're all yearning for? We just don't have language for it. Sometimes what is needed is just the articulation, and then all of us have a rallying cry. That's the standard. Yep. That's exactly what I want. I want that in my life and I want that in our lives. This is a church yearning. The spirit and the bride. It doesn't say the spirit and Eric Ludi say come. It says the spirit and the bride. It's us that say Maranatha. Return, O majesty. Return, O strength. Return, O Lord. How do we get from 11 to 12? We need one of you to do something about it. Now, I see all of you are looking at me. It's like, well, there you go. Uh, that's too obvious. I want you to be the one. I want you to imagine that no one else in this room is going to respond to this message. You always have to receive truth as if you're the only one on earth that is hearing it. Don't ever excuse yourself because someone else in the room is louder about it. You must respond. You must be the one. Do not let yourself off the hook with any creative justification or rationalization. You must respond. I remember Jackie Pollinger saying it this way. Whenever she reads a news article about someone that is dying, someone that is hurting, she must appropriate it to herself as if she's the only one on earth that ever read that. And she must carry the burden to God and say, God, do you want me to do something beyond pray? If so, I'm your vessel. So... Take this under the throne room of grace and say, God, do you want me to be the one? By the way, I already know the answer to that, so I don't know if you want me to cheat for you and just say, he's going to say yes. Yes is the answer. The return of the 11 men. The ache to see the real thing walk this earth once more. I, when you study Christian history, I, I don't know what it's like being in your skin, but I'm going to give you a little briefing of what it's like in mine. I feel lonely as a man. I know that sounds strange, but the, the pains and the aches that I carry, I oftentimes feel, I say, I want someone to preach to me. I want someone to shout at me. I want someone to challenge me. And instead, everyone's like, oh, Eric, we're waiting for you to say it to us. Hey, what about me? I don't have that luxury necessarily. I remember when David Wilkerson died, I mean, I wept. He at least shouted at me. Where, where are the men that will, will shout my way? Hey, C.T. Studd, could you come back from the dead just for one day? 
Charles Spurgeon, please, could you, could you visit me? Is there a recording of Charles Spurgeon? Can I hear it? I just want to hear the booming voice of authority when he preaches the word of God. That's what I want to hear. Do you have that ache, that longing? The return of the 11 men, the ache to see the real thing walk this earth once more. C.T. Studd. I know this is a funny list. There's a reason why I have this list. But this is a random list that I chose. Because you're going through Eric's past. George Washington. I used to teach American history. You're like, George Washington? What does he have to do with this? That man stood in the midst of some of the most desperate hours. I remember one story of him literally being pelted with bullets. And they all went through. His, his garment was riddled with holes. And yet he was untouched by it. This man was something special at the beginning of this nation. You know that our nation has quite the heritage and quite the history? Yeah, I want that guy back. You know that he carried himself with such a nobility that all the other men in his generation, without question, when it came to who was going to be president of the United States, they all in one voice said, we want George. And guess what? George didn't want to be president. The man they wanted didn't want it. I like this guy. You know what? They kept coming to him, please. We have a unanimous decision. We want you. This is a nation, an entire nation. Have you ever heard of a presidential election where 100% of the people voted for one person? That's the presence that this man had. Uh, Gouverneur Morris was joking about the fact that you guys are all afraid of this man. He's just a man. He puts on his pants just like all of us. They're like, oh, no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. And so he goes, watch. And they bet. And he said that he would go up and slap George Washington on the back and say, hey, George. I go, you wouldn't do that. He goes, I would. I'll do it. I'll show you guys. He's just a man. And so Gouverneur Morris goes up, even as he's closing in, he starts to get a little nervous, starts to sweat, slaps George on the back and says, hey, George. And George Washington turns around like, what was that? And Gouverneur Morris sort of shrinks down and skulks back into the corner. He got his money. He he won the bet, but he would never do that again. (laughs) William Wallace, Leonard Ravenhill, William Tyndale, George Mueller. What do you feel about Christianity if you wake up in the morning and know that these guys are on planet Earth? Uh, uh, Hey, I'm following these guys. Forget what we're doing here. Hey, I'm going where they're at. I want to follow a man who knows how to live it. That's what I yearn for. William Booth, John Prane Hyde, Hudson Taylor, Charles Spurgeon, William Wilberforce. Give me men that have the moxie. Give me men that have the stuff in their souls. Give me men that build their life upon the word of God and will stand in front of a nation, even if it kills them, and say, this is truth. Bend to it. Oh, I want it. But it's missing. So there's a loneliness, an ache, where I look around and I want these men to be there. And so I go to their books. I read their stories. And it's like, it doesn't quite do it for me. Because I want to talk with them. I want to watch them. You guys know what this is like. I want to hang out in their home and just watch how they handle the different circumstances in their life. I remember the ache at certain points where I was a young man just out of college and I was laying in my bed at night and I was just yearning, God, I know it sounds ridiculous, but could you bring one of these guys just back to life? I want to just ask him this one question. And I, I don't know if you've ever heard the story of me sitting down with Ian Thomas. There's, there's a few men that I wanted to meet before they died. Richard Wormbrandt. Uh, who was my other one? Richard Wormbrandt, Leonard Ravenhill, and uh, Ian Thomas joined my list. He wasn't in my younger list because I didn't know about him yet. But I had the privilege of meeting Ian Thomas. And so I was thinking, boy, I need to ask him a question. You know, so that I can always say I asked him a question. 
And so I finally asked him a question about, and I was laying the foundation of what's happening in Christianity today. And I was saying, what does a young man like me do? What's the answer to this? His answer was so, I'm not going to say disappointing, shocking. That might be a better way of saying it. His answer was one word. He said, Jesus. All right. Okay. (laughs) I knew that. And yet, I needed to hear him say that. There's something about this man giving me the simplicity that is in Christ that helped establish my ministry. That's what I needed to hear. And if any of you know me, you know that that one quote means a lot to me. That is the answer. The answer is a person. The answer is a man named Jesus Christ. It's not a historical statement. It's a living, breathing man who is also God Almighty, who has done it, and he will continue to do it. That which has gone missing, the 11 have departed. So now I'm going to introduce introduce you to an 11 in Scripture. You know that the number 11, even though it doesn't say the number 11, there is a list of 11 in Scripture. You know what it happens to enunciate? That which has been removed from Israel. Israel, or in this case, Judah and Jerusalem, has fallen into disrepair. And there is an indictment on them. And Isaiah the prophet is making it very clear. You have violated the law of God. You have turned towards other gods. And as a result, there is a fulfillment of my promise to you. And that is you will become enslaved to other nations. But the first sign of decomposition, the first sign of the erosion of Jerusalem and and, and Judah is that they will remove, that God will remove their strength. And how does he remove their strength? It's the 11 men. He removes the 11 strengths of Israel. The 11 strengths of Israel, do we know how far we have fallen? For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, takes away from Jerusalem and from Judah the supply and the support, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water, the mighty man and the man of war, the judge and the prophet, and the prudent and the elder, the captain of 50 and the honorable man, the counselor and the skillful artisan and the eloquent orator. They're removed. The first sign of judgment upon any nation is the removal of its 11 strengths. You see... It says the whole supply of water and the whole supply of bread. Who's that? Jesus. Why do you lose the strengths? Because you lost the water and the bread. When you lose Jesus at the center of any culture, you lose the strengths. You lose the strength of the man. And when you lose the strength of the man, well, every bad thing happens from that point onward. Now you have no defense. Now you have no intelligence. Now you have no wisdom for that country. It's all gone. Boy, Don't you feel like I just read about our country? What has happened to us? We have lost the strength. We have lost the bread and the water. We've lost Jesus Christ as the centerpiece of our lives, even as the church. The church is spending more of its time trying to diminish the person of Jesus and diminish the word of text than they are exalting it. What's happened? Why are we trying to excuse ourselves instead of bending our knee and declaring he is Lord? That's our job, is to believe, not to doubt and to question but we have turned against the very source of life itself. And as a result, we're beginning to break down. The loss of the 11 strengths, the entire supply and support of bread and water in Israel. C.T. Studd, the mighty man, what happened to him? George Washington, the man of war. William Wallace, the judge. Leonard Ravenhill, the prophet. William Tyndale, the prudent. 
George Mueller, the elder, William Booth, the captain of 50, John Prane Hyde, the honorable man, Hudson Taylor, the counselor, Charles Spurgeon, the skillful artisan, William Wilberforce, the eloquent orator. Hey, uh, hey guys, where are you? Well, I'd sort of like to have you back. I don't just speak for me, I speak for all of us. Wherever you are, could you return? What is God saying to us? Are you willing to have them return in you? Are you willing? This is not just men. This is the spirit of God and how he builds men. Are you willing to have that strength return in you? Because that's how it's going to return. By the way, William Wilberforce is not rising from the dead to serve this generation. William Wallace is not coming back after 700 years of lying in the grave. The only one that still remains is the bread and the water. And when you partake of that, you have the life. And suddenly, C.T. Studs emerge. George Mueller's emerge. And I'd like to say, those that would even go beyond C.T. Studd, those that would go beyond Hudson Taylor, those that would go beyond Leonard Ravenhill. Why, why should we aim our sights low? If we're going to bring this back, let's bring it back full force. When the 11 strengths are removed from Israel... You know what happens? Foolishness will reign. That's what it says in Isaiah. So let's read it. I will give children to be their princes. This is the exact next scripture. When you remove the 11 strengths, what happens? I will give children to be their princes and babes shall rule over them. Men without experience will suddenly be put into the presidency. The people will be oppressed, every one by another and every one by his neighbor. The child will be insolent toward the elder and the base toward the honorable. Do you see it? This is the pattern of the decomposition of a nation. So what would be the inverse? Well, it would be the return of the strength, the return of the bread and water. The amazing thing about the new covenant is God is saying, I have the bread and water and it is available to you. If you want the return of strength, it's already here. It's available to you. An age of foolish manhood. Mm-hmm. I mean, the way that men spend their time, the way that men entertain themselves, what men talk about, what men are fixated on, and they all justify it. And these are men in the church too. We just might have a higher level of morality to ours, but we justify the same waste of a life. We spend our lives in such frivolity. It has no basis in actually eternal reality. Are you going to take that into heaven? Is that going to make any difference in the years to come? Is that going to change the course of the nation? You're spending your life on nothing. Meanwhile, our nation is going down the tubes. But not just that, the church is going down the tubes. Not just that, our families are going down the tubes. Not just that, our marriages are going down the tubes. Wake up! There's a higher priority for us as men. And we're willing to say no to every entertainment, every distraction to say, I'm home right now. I'm here. Wife, I'm here. Kids, I'm here. Church, I'm back. Nation, you're going to have to reckon with the return of majesty in the church. Because we are back. The acceptance of mediocrity, subsiding into silence and allowing defeat to reign. When you look around you and every man is like you, in fact, you're actually doing a little better than them, well, that's called the acceptance of mediocrity. Subsiding into silence is the term that E.M. Bounds uses. It's just like, you know what? It's hard to fight. It's hard to always swing the sword. It's hard to always do the barking and the thundering. 
you know what, I'm just going to take a break for a while. You know, catch that drag behind the, the semi going down the road. I don't need to do, the, do all the work. I'm going to take it a little easier. And as a result, mediocrity begins to reign within the church. For my people are foolish and they have not known me. They are sottish or foolish children and they have no understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good they have no knowledge. The return of sanity, the re-education of the man. This past weekend we talked about starting over. I started over with grammar. I started over with learning how to reason and think. I started over with every discipline of my academic life when I was about 20 or 21. And I was getting A's in college. But I didn't know how to think for myself. All I knew how to do was imbibe what was being taught me and get it right on a test. I knew how to fit in the system and do it well, but my life had no original thought. I did not know how to use this body, this mind that I was given, to change it, change this world for Jesus Christ. Well, on Google it doesn't say that. I don't care what it says on Google. You know what? I don't care if it says it on Wikipedia. What does it say in the Word of God? That is our leader. We have lost it as our guidepost. We've lost it as our North Star. All our compasses are out of whack. We all disagree because we have different compass points. We're not fixed to the same point. Are we willing to get back in the saddle as the church? Imagine. What if the 11 strengths returned? Oh, boy. I mean, talk about making my day. The 11 strengths returned to the church? Oh, listen to this. The man of faith, also known as the mighty man. The believing man who takes God's word as truth and stands unflinchingly upon its promises. The man of action, the man of war. The ready man, ready for disaster or privation, ready to go, ready to rescue, ready to give, ready to act, ready for war. Could you imagine if we had these 11 men in this church, what it would be like? You see, you have a man who is marked by faith. You have another man who's marked by action. Do you know that the man of faith needs the man of action? You know that these 11 strengths work in tandem? And what does 11 beg? One more. And so they recruit you as well. In other words, the 11 strengths beg one more. The man of fact, the judge, the arbitrator, the decision maker, the man of scripture truth, the man of words, the prophet, the speaker, the teacher, the communicator of truth, the man of practical wisdom, the prudent, the wise, the set apart and properly guarded, the circumspect, the watchful, the master of efficiency, the man of history, the elder, those of history, those of sagacity, those of old who possess perspective and wisdom, the man of leadership and responsibility, the captain of 50, those made strong to guide as husbands, as fathers, as elders, as pastors, the man of honor, the honorable man, the spirit governed, the noble, the heavenly mannered, the man of the gospel, the counselor, the gospel tier, the evangelist, the man with truth ready upon his life and lips, the man of skillful artistry, the skillful artisan, the master craftsman, the chief musician, the man of intercession, the eloquent orator, the man of prayer, the man of intercession, the man ready to give, the man made strong to serve. When the men return, oh, this gets me excited. The little boys once again have a pattern. Now, for those of you that are fathers in here, you know that ache. When you know your sons are looking at you, and you're like, I don't have it completely down. So I want you to follow me, but could you just sort of study Jesus and just know I want that, but I, I don't know how to model it for you. What does every boy long for? A physical, practical, tangible, living, breathing model. We all want it. I want it. I, I haven't had it the same way I desire it, but guess what? God will make up the difference, and our boys are not just going to go over cliffs because we're not a finished product. But don't you yearn 
to be such an example? Don't you yearn to have your boys grow up around those 11 strengths? What would boys turn out like if they grew up around those 11 strengths? I mean, just start dreaming. And I tell you what, what would you, how would you be different if you grew up around those 11 strengths? If you could start over and just go back to your childhood and be surrounded by that, how do you live differently all those years in between? The little boys once again have a pattern. Let's look at what little boys can once again become. See, we don't expect much out of our 10 to 13 to 15-year-olds. It's like, hey, they're still young. They'll come around and they'll, once, they'll one, eventually become serious maybe about truth. What if, and this is spoken to all the 10 to 15-year-old boys in here, what if you caught a vision of being strong for truth now? You know that throughout history, little boys, 10 to 15, have been used to turn the world on its head? I just told you about David yesterday. You know that John Quincy Adams at the age of, it was like 12 or 13, was an ambassador to Russia? Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> you see, we have such a low expectation of what God will do in our life, and as a result, not much happens in our life. But when you begin to believe big, when you begin to think big, God does big things because he always does exceedingly abundantly beyond, beyond all we could ask or think. So let's start asking and thinking really big because God will still supersede it. So let's look at this. Imagine this. I mean, this is exciting. The boy of unimpeachable honor, not just a well-mannered boy, but a truly noble boy who behaves with regal honor and heavenly decorum. The boy of uncompromising restraint, not just a boy who can treat a girl with respect, but preserve her with his every thought. The boy ever prepared for disaster, not just a boy scout, but one ready to endure the most extreme privations, difficulties, and sufferings with adroitness and enthusiasm. The boy of unflinching gospel force, not just a boy that prays the salvation prayer, but one who brings the full gospel to the nations and refuses to stop preaching even when threatened with death. The boy fit for battle, not just a boy that looks sculpted in the mirror, but one built strong and fit to tackle the most formidable obstacles of physical challenge. The boy skilled for every task, not just a boy that knows how to use his iPhone, but one that is built to problem solve and practically help in any and every situation. The boy who knows what it means to be a man, not just a boy that understands the distinctions of maleness, but one who fully understands and embraces the extraordinarily difficult calling of heavenly manhood. Number eight, the boy that yearns for the low seat. In every situation, he delights to find the low spot, the little position, knowing that the world is changed through humble servants and not through proud despots. Number nine, the boy with a sixth sense for the stinkiest sinners. And with a smile in his soul, he sets out to win them for Christ, knowing that there is no greater testimony than when the most notorious sinners bend to the power of the gospel and are transformed before the world that has always known them as the dirtiest of scoundrels. Number 10, the boy who wears out floorboards on his knees, for he knows how to pray and not just dinner prayers or prayers pleading for help on his math test, but he knows how to heed the spirit and yield to the burden of God for the lost, the dying, the hurting, and the needy around him. And finally, number 11, of course, because there has to be 11, the boy who is implacable. He is immune to mockery, impervious to ridicule, and deaf to the booze of a world that loves darkness more than light. In fact, watch his face in the moment of trial when the world turns against him and you will see a wry smile crease his face and a twinkle of thrill alight in his eyes. He is built for such a time as this, and he knows it. See, most of us that are grown up are wishing we could be that boy. We're talking about a 10 to 15-year-old. Whatever happened to us? We're a little behind, aren't we? See, I'm willing to start afresh right now. 
If it's necessary, if God needs to reconstruct some foundation stones in my life, I'm in. I've already gone through this multiple times in my life when I was 20 to 21, somewhere in there. I literally started completely over. In my intellect, in my understanding, in my spiritual life, everything was rebuilt from ground up. You know what? Even at the age of 43, if it's necessary. For instance, if you just have a small foundation, how high can you build? You're limited. But what if your foundation goes from being a square foot to being the size of this room? Can you build higher? Absolutely. If I'm limited in my foundation, I'm willing for God to say, are you ready to start over, Eric? It doesn't mean he throws out everything, but he might remove all the lumber, stack it up over here and say, we'll use it, don't worry. But are you willing to relay the foundation? We need to get bigger. God's intention is the full stature of the man of Christ being revealed in his church. And if we are stunting that because of our idiocy, did you know that the younger generation today is actually considered the dumbest generation ever? We have access to more knowledge and information and facts than any other time in history, and yet we're considered the dumbest generation ever. Are you going to take that sitting down? Are you going to rise up and say, God, you start with this and prove that false. Start with me. Prove it false. May this be the generation most yielded to the power of God ever. The great return. Yovel. Typically translated jubilee. You guys ever heard of the Jubilee? It's the 50th year. And in the 50th year, a horn was blown. And all the property, I mean, slaves, they were returned. Everyone could return into their possession. So the great return, Yovel, it's the ram's horn. That's what it actually means. It means ram's horn. The word Jubilee actually means ram's horn. It's the year of the ram's horn. Isn't that fascinating? A ram is a male. And it's the horn of a male. And they turn it into a trumpet. So it's a male that turned his horn, symbol of authority and strength, turns into a trumpet. The joyful shout is what Yovel means. It means the jubilee. And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Ghost. This is John the Baptist's father. And prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He's prophesying. He's speaking of something that is actually not yet born. It is in the womb of Mary. And there is a horn of salvation that has come about. There is a jubilee that has come. He's, he has raised up a horn. Uh, by the way, that's a ram's horn of salvation. That male symbol out of the descendancy of David, the horn has come. The jubilee has come. This is the great return. The great return is known as the Jubilee, the ram's horn, where the return has come. The Jubilee, the blowing of the ram's horn. Then thou shalt, shalt thou cause the trumpet of Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. What, what's happening on the tenth day of the seventh month? In the day of atonement shall you make the trumpet sound throughout all your land. Huh. Well, that's interesting. Do you know where the atonement was gained? It was gained at the cross. The ram's horn has been blown. The jubilee has been sounded. Everything necessary for the great return has been finished. And you shall hallow the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee unto you. And you shall return every man unto his possession. And you shall return every man unto his family. In the year of this jubilee, you shall return every man unto his possession. Two things, atonement, the cross. The 50th, you know what Pentecost means? 
the 50th. That's what it means. It's the giving of the Spirit of God to enable the Jubilee to be activated in each of our lives. The cross and the Jubilee, the 50th. That's it. The return. It has been accomplished. It has been finished. Everything you need to live this life as you have been commissioned to live it is there. The 11 strengths, they're waiting to be taken. They're waiting to be inculcated. They're waiting to be built up in the church. We have left them as dried lumber off to the side. We've ignored them. We've forsaken the trust that we've been given as the church. We've been given exceeding great and precious promises, but we've left them. We've abandoned them, but they're still there. Are we willing to rise up in this hour and go to that lumber, those great precious promises, and see the house of God once again established? Shuv. It looks like shub, but when it's at the end of a, a word like that, it's, it makes a v sound. So we have shuv. I know, a very powerful word, and not a very poetic one, but it's a good one. It means return. And since that's what we're talking about, you might as well learn a Hebrew word while we're at it. You've already got yovel, so now let's go shub. Return, to turn about, to be converted as a sinner, to return to do, to do again, to turn oneself, to cease from doing, to leave off doing, to recover that which was lost. In the Hebrew, we have the word shuv, but in the New Testament, understanding of life, this would typically be repent, return, come back, alter your course. You cannot head in that direction. Shuv! And so we have the word shuv. It is made up of three different letters. And you can see it. The, the Hebrew reads from right to left. So the first letter is that one that looks sort of like a W. And that letter is right here. It's shin. And in the ancient Hebrew, it actually is the symbol on the right in the white block. It looks like two teeth. You have to look at it closely to actually envision it, but that's actually what it was. It was the picture of two teeth. And so in the ancient Hebrew, the one that eventually became what you see there in the modern Hebrew, that's shin, which means two front teeth. It's actually every Hebrew letter has a meaning. It does. It's like A to us and B to us and C to us has no meaning. So someone could say, what does A mean? And we could stroke our chin and say, nothing. It doesn't mean anything other than A, A, or A. And people go, oh, profound. doesn't mean anything. But when you go shin, what does shin mean? You go, well, it actually means two front teeth. It means sharp, press, eat, or two. What? What is that? Oh, this is, this is truly amazing. This is the word for return in the Bible. So now here's our second letter. So plus vav, which it looks sort of like a Y off to the right. But actually, that's a tent peg. I know we don't wear, use tents like this, and our tent pegs don't actually look like that. You know what's interesting? Is as tent pegs begin to mature through time, they actually looked more like the one on the left. That's actually what a tent peg more would look like. But this is an old-fashioned tent peg here. And so it means tent peg, or add, secure, or hook. And so now we need one more letter. Every root word in the Hebrew has three letters. So every, there are always three letters woven together, and they create a verb. And this is the third one. It's bait. And this is, I know it might not look like it, but that's the picture of an old tent on the right. That's the way the tent would work. It has a room on the inside, and it has a doorway entrance. And so this is actually the concept of a house or a tent. And it means family, house, or inn. What's your position? Uh-huh. And this word, this letter, is very critical to that. And so it's bait. It actually means house. If you just heard the word bait, it actually means house. And so you combine those together and you get this word, which is shub, which I'm going to give you an understanding of. It's a return to strength. 
It's a return to home. The return unto the possession. Every man will be returned unto his family. Think about this. When the father's heart turns unto his children and the children's heart turns unto the father, that is the sign of the Messiah. The return, the first place it changes is the home, the individual life. Your heart turns unto the father, the father turns unto you. The marriage, the family, this is a return. The basis of a return is in this home. This is where God begins. A return to strength, a return to home. A unique look at shuv. So here we have our first letter, okay? It's the shin. Now it's the two teeth. Now I'm gonna liken this to something that you might not be totally familiar with in your Christianity, but it would be good if you were. And that is, it's sort of like a biting or a pressing. It's a pain. And it's called conviction. You see, there is a biting or a pressing or a pain upon our soul. Who's, who's bringing that conviction? It's the spirit. The spirit is known as the second. The other meaning for this is two. Isn't that funny? The first is the flesh. The second is the spirit. And so you have the biting or the cutting, the pressing of the second. And so do you feel that pressing? It's called conviction. It's a sharp biting pain in your soul. It's a hunger. The other word for this is eat. Have you ever had it where you're longing? You have this hunger in your spiritual life and you must have something. That's the spirit of God doing it. It's the teeth. It's the shin. It's a hunger, a craving for the second life, to be done with this life of flesh and to truly gain the life of the spirit. Now we have the tent peg. Well, what's our problem? Hey, have you ever looked at your tent and you're looking at it, it's all collapsed? You know, if you take the tent pegs from a tent, it takes away all its support and it collapses. So there's your wife under there and you can sort of see her, you know, she's underneath the, the tent and your children are like, Aah! and what do you have in your hand? You're feeling a little guilty, why? Because the teeth have bit down into you and they're saying, what do you have in your hand? I'm like, well, the tent pegs. You've taken the tent pegs. The tent pegs belong at the home. Why, why do you have them? So you're standing off to the side as you hear your wife and your kids crying over there. And you're like, oops. Conviction. It's abiding. But there's a hunger to see your house return to its original state. There's a desire to return but it's awkward. It's a hard thing to return to because you have to admit that you took the tent stakes. Ah, I don't want to have to humble myself and take responsibility for the fact that my home collapsed because of me. I don't want to do that. As a result, your home will never be rebuilt. You see, Jesus is in the business. He's a carpenter. He builds homes for a living. He's in the business of rebuilding temples. That's what he does. Tear this temple down. I'll rebuild it in three days. But the temple of which he spoke was his body. We are the temple of the living God. He will rebuild this. He'll rebuild our homes. He'll rebuild our church, which is also a living structure. So you ran off with the tent pegs, and your tent is now in shambles for that which adds and secures the tent is missing. Therefore, your house is collapsed upon all that is under your care and watch. Now we have the house. Bring them back. Return, O tent peg thief, and see your house once again stand strong. This is the concept of return. Isn't that an amazing word in the Hebrew? The concept of return is, wait a minute, we're missing some tent stakes. Do you feel the conviction? Return those tent stakes to where they properly were and reestablish something that has been lost. It's broken down. Return. So the 11 returns. This is actually the way that return is used in 11 different ways in the Bible. To go unto the vomit that you vowed never to touch again. You ever heard this one? This is not a fun one. 
But it happened, but it has happened unto them according to the true proverb that the dog is turned to his own vomit again. That's the return, but where did he return to? To his vomit. Yuck. And a sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Where, you get the sow all cleaned off and where's the sow go? Oh, no, 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 oh, no, right back to the mud. This is the sort of return I just want to get out of the way. It's the first one on the list. Then we have 10 others that are going to be a lot more pleasant. This is the sort of returning that we have been doing. And I'm here to tell you, let's <clears throat> repent of this sort of returning and let's return the way God intended us to return. To turn around and walk the other way. That's, that's actually one of the definitions of return. Turn us again, O God, and cause thy face to shine and we shall be saved. It also means to repent. That's actually what it means. To come back to first things. You see, there are things that were awakened. And you remember when you first built this house and you put a plaque on the wall that says, uh, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Remember that day? That was a special day. Right on the side of your tent. And then there came a day when something knocked on the door and you said, yes, can I help you? And it wooed you. It called you outside the tent and it said, you know what? To have this sort of fun and this sort of pleasure, you need to pull up your tent stakes. Oh, that uh, sounds harmless. My tent can stand without those. And then it kept wooing you further and further away from the centrality of what God was building. And pretty soon you find yourself pretty far away. And so what's return mean? To repent and to come back to the first things. Do you remember how God started this? Return to that. That's what it says in Revelation. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. You know what return actually means? It means to die. You know that I'm just giving you the gospel and the word return? This is actually what it means in the Old Testament. It means to die. Have you ever heard the statement to return to the dust from which you came? Yeah, from dust you, you, you were formed, and to dust you'll return. Yeah, that's actually how it's used for the concept of dying. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. So, you know what? This is the gospel. You need to repent, you need to come and die. You need to return unto the cross, unto Christ Jesus, where you can return unto the way you originally were designed to be and that is under his rulership. You need to die to the old life. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What happens when you take up a cross? Well, you're coming to die. People don't pick up crosses and live. They pick up their crosses and go to die. Number five, it actually means to repair something to working order. Isn't that neat? That's what return means. You've been needing that in your life, haven't you? Return ye backsliding children, and I will hear your, heal your backslidings. The word backsliding is actually the word shuv. Behold, we come unto thee, for thou art the Lord our God. It means to refresh, to bring back energy. You know that growl we talked about this weekend, men? It means to refresh, to bring back the fire that's been lost. Return unto thy rest, O my soul, for the Lord hath dealt bountifully with thee. It means to give, that which, give back that which was taken. It means to receive back that which was lost. That's what Jubilee is all about. It means to bring back to mind, to remember. Remember what God has taught you. Don't let it go to the wayside. You have been entrusted with truth. Remember. Return unto that remembrance. Take communion afresh and remember the work of the cross. He has done it for you. Number 10. It means to reverse the direction. And the Lord said unto Jacob, Return unto the land of thy fathers and to thy kindred. 
and I will be with you. So Jacob is the heel grabber. He's the one that's grabbing the flesh. And what is God saying? I want you to return to the land of promise. You know what the land of promise is? That's the land of Canaan. It's the place of the Spirit. Jacob, I want you to return into the land of promise. What happens on his return? He grabs a hold of God and gets a new name, Israel. The best way of describing Israel is he's the God grabber. Return unto grabbing God instead of the flesh and your own self-effort. Number 11, which is, by the way, our final one, because 11 is sort of a theme here. To be fully restored, to be brought back to a previous strength. And the Lord restored, that's actually the word shuv, restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. You return to your house that you have pulled the tent stakes up from, and you return those tent stakes afresh, and you see the Lord rebuild that house, and guess what? Now the Lord blessed the latter days of that house more than in the previous. Somehow God is going to leverage our stupidity in pulling up tent stakes and destroying our life. He's going to leverage our return. And he's going to make our latter house, the second house, even more beautiful. How does he do it? He's God. He specializes in taking what the enemy meant for evil and turning it into good in our life. But are we willing to return? Because to return, you have to humble yourself and acknowledge that you have the tent stakes. Oops. You feel that biting, that conviction? It's okay. It's good. That means the Father loves you. You see, conviction is good. It's something I've always called it sweet conviction. It's not always fun. I'm not going to say the things that God has asked me to do are not easy. I've had to humble myself in ways that are just horrible. I remember this one radio show I was on where I said something. I don't remember what it was. I'm really glad that I can't remember the details because then I'd probably have to tell it to you. But I said something and it wasn't completely true. And it wasn't that big of a deal. That's what my mind's saying afterwards. Like, come on. I mean, it's close to true. It wasn't that. So I'm going through this, but I was convicted. And you know how hard it was to call up a national radio show host that really respected me and tell them that I, and I, I, God had me pressed to the point I couldn't just say that I spoke incorrectly. I had to say that I lied. God, don't do this to me. Eric, I love you too much to not. Hi. Yeah, this is Eric Ludy. I lied. I did. I have the tent stakes. The reason that the church is failing. It's not just because of the church. It's also because of me. I'm responsible too. I'm a participant in the collapse of the tent. Don't just point our fingers outward. We start with us. Do you have a tent stake in your hand? Return it. Humble yourself and acknowledge that you too have participated in the collapse. We love to point fingers out and just call the church out there the problem. Look at the church. Well, the church is weak and we're part of it. Let's make sure we take the plank out of our eye so that we can see clearly to help the church address its speck. For majesty to return. Uh, So here's our teeth. For majesty to return, we need the teeth. We, the men of God, must return to our God. Yeah, we must accept the conviction and we must come back to God. The tent stakes. We, the men of God, must grab a hold of the hammer and the tent pegs and return to our tents. If majesty is going to return, we have to return to first things. We have to return to our tents and take care of first things first. Your thought life, your heart, your mind, your sexuality, your eyes, your ears, your feet, your hands. 
You start with first things. This tent, get those tent stakes back in. That grace of God must be applied. Deal with your marriage. Don't try and address the issues out there. We have a dying church. Yeah, for majesty to return, we need to deal with first things first. Our tent, our personal tent, our marriage tent, our family tent. When that's together and all of us have our tents right, guess what? We got some serious majesty in our midst because now we can function as the church of Jesus Christ. And here's our bait, our house. We, the men of God, must stand at the door of our homes and start behaving as men. So where does a man stand? He stands at the door. Hey, you stay out of my house. You guys fine in here? You see, you care for your your wife and your kids. You're a shepherd that cares for sheep, and you're a shepherd that belts the wolves in the cheek. You see, you're both and. You stand guard at the door. You see, you've returned to your house. If you're going to return to your house, you're not going to let it fall again, right? I mean, you're not going to be the dog that returns to his vomit and picks up its ten stakes and goes wandering off again, are you? Of course not. We're Christians, which means we return to our home and we stay there. We abide in Christ. We remain in our position and we stand guard at the door. Out! Out! Hey, all right. From Jesus, you can come right on in. We accept that which comes from the hand of our God and we repel and resist the devil. And now for the clincher. Aren't you excited? I'm going to go back to our Hebrew word, yovel. Remember, that was the ram's horn? That was Jubilee. I'm sorry to you know, throw all this Hebrew at you. It's just really fun. Yovel, the ram's horn, the joyful shout, the Jubilee. We're going to call it the great return. We could just call it the return of majesty. We need the Yovel. We need the return. So you know how it's spelled? Did I have it? No, I don't have the Hebrew there for some reason. You know what its first letter is? It's the tent stakes, or the tent peg. That's the very beginning of, of the word. And so it's a tent peg, add secure hook. You know what the second letter is? Well, there's our, see, I'm not throwing that stuff. You're learning Hebrew today. You know what that is. That, if I covered up the bottom part, I said, what does that mean? You do, I can see some of you going, that's a house or a tent. And I go, yeah, what does it translate to? Family house or inn. Like, Good job, guys. That's impressive. You've been listening. All right, so we have the tent pegs plus the tent or the house. And we have a shepherd's crook, the lamed, which means to teach, yoke, toward, and bind. What a beautiful word. This is actually what the word is. God is compiled. He's built with his own lettering, a a language that reveals the Messiah. He has revealed the gospel to us and cobbled together these three letters which turn into a verb, an action of God. So it means Yovel. The tent pegs have been brought back. The house has been rebuilt and restored. I don't know if you you catch that. The house has been rebuilt and restored. Tear down this temple, tear down this house, and I'll rebuild it in three days. He is risen. He is risen indeed. It's accomplished. The house has been rebuilt. Ram's horn! Jubilee! The house has returned! He has risen indeed. Now the great shepherd stands at the door of this house, inviting all who are aching for the return to come in and eat with him. And anyone who repents and turns from his tent peg thievery and house vandalism and enters into this rebuilt house of God, he will bind with him an eternal covenant. Who stands at the door of your house? It's not just you. It's the shepherd, Jesus with his 
shepherd's crook in hand. Do you want to mess with that? If you were a wolf, would you mess with Jesus, the chief shepherd? You've got to be kidding. You're secure inside of this. When you build your house around that shepherd, around that resurrection life, I tell you what, your house is secure. That which is in it is safe. And that which wants to come in it and violate it, oh, is in danger. Because we have the shepherd at the door of this house. You see, Jesus stands at the door of his house, known as the body of Christ. And he stands as a shepherd. And he extends out his shepherd's crook to us, a little sheep. And he says, come on, come on, taps us on the back. He says, come on in. You see, if we will admit, if we will confess, and we will say, look, I've, I've been wrong, oh dear shepherd. I need your life. I need to enter into you. Do you know that there's no resistance? In fact, he is your biggest advocate. He'll pick you up and even carry you in. And we live inside of his house. It's called the body of Christ. You're in him. What's your position? In You're in that house. You're in that bait. That's why the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet is so critical. The first letter, Aleph, is for the father. The second is for the son. What does it mean? It's a house. And it means in. That's what it means. The second means in. Isn't that incredible? And so as a result, when we come unto the house of Christ, he brings us in, and we are secured, and we will remain there always. You want the secret to the return of strength in your own tent? The strength of return in your own marriage? The strength of return in your own family? The strength of return in the church of Jesus Christ? You need this. You need the chief shepherd. You need his resurrection life. He has done it. He has rebuilt the temple. He has given you everything you need for life and godliness so that your house can function as it ought. The foretelling of the great return. In the book of Isaiah, listen to this, the remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob unto the mighty God, and the ransom to the Lord shall return, this is the word shuv, and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sign shall flee away. What's it talking about in the book of Isaiah? It's talking about what we know as the gospel. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing and design and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the tent peg thief forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord. And he will have mercy on him and to our God, and he will abundantly pardon. So our final slide, asking for the desiderio. Asking for that longing, that craving for the house of Christ. That craving for the majesty once again. Peter, why do you cry? Desiderio Domini. Because I dearly long, I ache, I yearn. For Jesus. If you don't have it, ask for it. If you are void of the same way I was, God, I, I don't have whatever that is. But he has it. It's called the Spirit of God. And it yearns to unite father and child. The Spirit of God labors to bring us into that oneness. He yearns for it. He's desideroing. That was a bad way of saying it. He's longing for it. So what happens when he enters into us? He longs within us. And we find ourselves going, Desiderio? Desiderio. And our chest starts convulsing. 
and we break down in a longing all for the day we will be face to face. All for longing. You know what's amazing is the church of Jesus Christ, what we have the privilege of today, is we can have the return of Jesus Christ, at least in spirit. And that we can see Jesus Christ in and through each other's faces. And we can visit each other's homes. And we can see our God and the majesty of our King. You see, it's a foretaste. To live is Christ. We can see him. But to die is even better. We get to be with our Domini, with our Lord. Don't fear it. Don't fear death. Death is what Peter longed for. You guys know how Peter died, don't you? Peter was, even Jesus told him how he was going to die, but the details unfolded. Peter was going to be crucified on a cross just like Jesus. That was the ultimate way of mocking him. We'll kill you just like the one you preach about. And Peter loved his Lord so desperately that he pled with them to not crucify him as his Lord died, for he is unworthy to die in such a way. So they crucified Peter upside down. Peter had a more painful death because of his love and honor for Jesus Christ. Who in the right mind chooses even greater pain so that they could show the honor to their domini? I want that. I want that not just in me, I want that in us. And if you're game, I say, let's ask for it. Do you think God's going to say no? He wants to say yes. He's the one giving the burden. He's the one saying, do you see it? Ask. Ask. It's my delight to give it. So let's ask. Father, you have what we need. And as Jacob in the dark night, we put our grip on you. And Lord, may we fight. May we wrestle. And may we not let go until we get it. We need something. We need the return. The Yovel. We need to freshly in our ears hear the ram's horn blow. We need to know that there is a victory. We need to know it in the depths of our soul and begin to live accordingly. Please, Lord Jesus, bring back the 11 strings. Please bring back the men. Please restore our homes, our marriages, and our churches. Restore us to the strength of yesteryear. Awake, awake, put on the strength of arm of the Lord as in the ancient days, as in the generations of old. For we cannot live without it. Give us the strength of heaven or we die. Give us the return of majesty or we fail in this generation. We as a church cannot do it in our own strength, and we cannot do it with the little pittance of power that we have now. We need the return of majesty. And so we ask for it. We ask for the burning in each of our chests. We ask for those two teeth to bite down upon our soul and to show us where we are holding tent pegs and to see us return unto our tents afresh to see a restoration and a rebuilding and a resurrection, a quickening of our lives, our marriages, our families, our churches, our nation. Lord, may we sigh and may we cry. May you mark our foreheads with your seal. For we desiderio.
we care, we desire, we ache. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludi, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please, feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.